Hi, everyone. I know that the news these days is extremely grim. The horrible war in Ukraine makes that even the bad news of the IPCC report, which warned that the window for timely climate action is rapidly closing, was pushed from the front pages. And when negative news doesn't even make it to the front pages, you can be sure that positive news has an even a harder time to get any attention. But last week, there actually was good news and that would have gotten much more attention if it wasn't for the brutal invasion of Ukraine. There were, I believe, 173 countries that agreed to start negotiations on an international agreement to take action on the plastic crisis. And that is basically all countries in the world. There's a little bit more, but all the countries that we need to have on board for such a mandate were there. And they tasked themselves, and they tasked the whole world with developing an overarching framework for reducing plastic waste across the world. And you may remember that some two months ago, in one of the very first podcasts in this series, I spoke with Tom Gamage, a marine biologist and ocean campaigner at the Environmental Investigation Agency, and he explained why the world badly needs a plastic tree. And I'm so happy that Tom agreed to join us again today to report back on the progress made on the negotiation mandate and on the next steps and everything else that we want to know. And of course, you can also ask questions towards the end uh, that you may have for Tom. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Alex. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to have you back here. And I'm so glad that you are willing to make some time, which must surely be your evening in the UK. Um, and yeah, I guess you must be happy with the results so far. Can you can you summarize for the the non specialists in uh, plastic treaties, which I guess is includes me and everybody else, on on what this decision really means? Yeah, and I'll, I'll try I'll try and do this. And uh, Alex, I'll I'll, um, I'll trust you to sort of uh, step in and um, and uh, and set me right if I if I go into too much detail. I'm not making sense at some point. But I just, I, it's difficult to sort of um, understate just how monumental this this actually is. Um, up until now, we've just had lots of voluntary agreements, uh, which have, hasn't really got at the, the crux of the problem. They're focused on waste management and, and sort of not looking at production, for example, or design of products. Um, and, and, and now we've got countries that have come together and put aside their differences in, in a way that we've never really seen before. Um, to sort of say, okay, this is a massive global problem. Uh, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's problems. Drivers are transboundary, but also the pollution is also transboundary. And so there's this is no one approach that, that that sort of one country or one region can take. You know, you can you can have the most ambitious policies in the world nationally. Uh, it doesn't matter because uh, the problem the the, the the problem is transboundary, both in terms of pollution, but also because plastics are, are products that we use and they're traded internationally too. Um, is that yeah, yeah. This is so. This is a massive thing. Some some uh, commentators compare it to the the Montreal Protocol. Is that also the one that let's say inspires you? Is it as monumental as that? Well, I think, I mean, certainly it's at least as monumental as, as say, like the Paris Agreement previously. But where, where the Paris Agreement failed, the Montreal Protocol succeeded. And there's a lot of learnings that we can we can take from that. And for those listeners that are maybe not aware of like what the Montreal Protocol is, essentially it's an agreement that is like a climate change agreement. It's a legally binding agreement to, to phase out 
ex uh, extreme climate pollutants. So these are like thousands and thousands of times more polluting for the climate than carbon dioxide. And then they use as refrigerants. So they use it like in fridges and to keep things cool amongst other things. And so this was, this was an agreement where, you know, you basically got this product, these HFCs, this hyperpollutant, that, that are also pollution, right? And this is, this is kind of how it relates to plastic is because plastics are both products and they're also pollution at the same time. Um, and so what they did is countries came together and they just they set a global cap and then they phased down those uh, those HFCs, these, these really nasty climate pollutants. And we saved the hole in the ozone layer. I mean, like when I was a kid, I remember everyone, I don't know if you remember, Alex, yeah. like the, the hole in the ozone layer, everyone was, was rightfully very concerned about that. Um, yeah, yeah, we were even much more concerned about that in those days, yeah. the climate change, which felt like a really distant, far away, more yeah. theoretical problem than something practical in those days. Whereas you saw that uh, skin cancer was increasing rapidly, uh, especially amongst you know well-known surfers and and and, and uh, people that spend a lot of time outside, and especially in, in the southern hemisphere, in uh, like like Australia. And uh, yeah, I remember that that uh, that clearly. It was it was yeah. the first kind of real global problem that we tackled. Because the other thing that got a lot of attention in those days was acid rain, which was much more kind of local. It was cross boundary. Let's say for me living in the Netherlands, we were talking about it with Germany, but that was not something that was like taking place all over the world. But this was truly the first global one. But I think for the the Montreal Protocol, one of the secrets of its success, and of course there are many reasons for its success, but one of the, well, it's not a secret, but you could say one of the secrets of its success is that the industry that uh, produced um, uh, this this uh, material that they mainly use in, in the refrigerators, mm -hmm. they had an interest too because the alternative was actually more profitable exactly. than 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 the stuff that was in there but is is there any kind of comparison with that in this case because i can imagine that let's say the oil industry the oil industry and the plastic industry is 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 i suppose quite quite connected but i can imagine that they are not too happy with um a, an agreement that would reduce their their profits on plastics or are there also alternatives or other reasons why the industry uh, did get on board yeah it's an interesting question i think i mean certainly say say two years ago you know the industry i suppose it, it was more of a monolith than it is now um so you kind of had the fast mover consumer goods companies and the kind of retailers um that were kind of um sort of reminiscent or like at least familiar with like you know the same interests as you know big oil and gas to some to some limited extent at least um, but like we've recently seen, you know, companies like Unilever and you know, hundreds of others come forward and be like, OK, no, now we want we want reductions on virgin plastic production. This is plastic that hasn't been used before. Ninety nine percent of it comes from fossil fuels like oil, gas or coal. Um, and so we want we want to sort of break free from that because we you know, there's loads of there's loads of reasons why they might they might want to do that. Um, but. Um, yeah. Virgin, virgin, virgin production is kind of is kind of where where the conversation is is now um, because we've got all these companies and all these stakeholder groups that are joining us 
uh, in terms of our position and being like, yeah, look, we're, we're watching global production double every 10 years. It's expected to exceed 1 billion, 1 billion tons in production um, by 2050 if we don't cap it. Like it's, it's going to get very messy very quickly unless we, unless we do something about, about that. Um, and yeah, the Montreal Protocol, it's interesting you brought that up because yeah, the, the polluters kind of became the, the the protagonists they kind of became the, the the ones that were actually helping to solve the problem in a way you know because they had there was no new players that could enter the market and so they kind of had a bit of a monopoly and same with plastic like you know i don't think it's so bad if we have a cap those companies can charge still what they want uh for it yeah yeah, yeah so that's I wonder where 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 this will go because now you can negotiate and it must be extremely tough to to get everybody on board. Just just a step back here. I can remember from last time we spoke, which was in late December, that there was at that moment two resolutions. I believe one was from uh, Rwanda and Peru, which Indeed, went yeah. much further, and the other draft decision came from japan which uh which included all kinds of limitations what you were not allowed to negotiate about how 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 did it go in the last weeks because those two were still on the table what was finally was a compromise found or or uh, how did the negotiations go yeah it was a it was a rocky unpredictable road um we, we did get there <laughs> in the end but yeah so so we had those two proposals so we had the, just a yeah we had the one from japan which was the sort of less, uh, much less ambitious one. Um, and then we also had the one from Rwanda and Peru that was very ambitious. And by ambitious, I mean, you know, with a scope to tackle, you know, production and product design. So what we call the upstream stages, as well as sort of more the downstream stages and a recognition that plastic pollutes throughout its whole life cycle, you know, all the way from when it's extracted as a fossil fuel all the way to the end. So, you know, so we had these two competing proposals, these two competing visions, I suppose. And yeah, since we last spoke, I suppose the Rwanda, Peru, the ambitious vision, uh, the one that we're supporting, just grew and grew in popularity. Uh, just grew and grew and grew. And we had over 60 co-sponsoring countries in the end that were signed up to that to that resolution, that, that proposal, that decision um, to be made at UNEA. Um, and yeah, Japan got a few, they got a few countries, um, to, to, to sort of co-sponsor it, but essentially moving in, we were, we were in, it was quite clear where, where the majority of opinion sort of lied. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Can you, we also had a, yeah, we also had a, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I just want to add like, yeah, last minute, we also had a proposal from India out of nowhere, just came in out of nowhere, uh, for a, like a voluntary body, like, like a step down from Japan, like a few <laughs> runs, <laughs> okay. uh, just like a couple of voluntary forums that would do basically nothing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Can, can you explain for it? I mean, well, I, I find this mighty interesting because I've been doing this kind of work, not on plastics, but on, on, uh, on, on conventional uh, disarmament issues. I worked a lot on landmines, et cetera. So I, I, I love international negotiations and I've, I've done it in, in many other fora as well, of course, uh, in, in my time as a diplomat. Mm-hmm. But can you explain to uh, the people listening what you do as an NGO? Because officially the states are, uh, are negotiating they are sitting uh, around the table you don't have an official place at the table but um i know how influential ngos can be so so can you explain what what you are doing and what the environmental investigation agency is is doing in those days mm, yeah that's a good 
I mean, so yeah, luckily, you know, uh, uh, the UN Environment Assembly, uh, yeah, we have we have full participation, right? So we have we have observer status, what they call. So, so we can attend as an accredited stakeholder. So we're accredited to the UN Environment Program, and yeah, you can be accredited as a as a business stakeholder or as sort of like a farmers union, or you know, all sorts of different stakeholders can can become accredited under different groups. Um, so we, yeah, so we attended with a bunch of our, of our NGO colleagues and yeah, I mean, some, some of the negotiations are, you know, some of them are more closed, um, but in, in, in the week leading up to the UN Environment Assembly, that's where all the negotiations basically take place or the vast majority of them take place. It's called the OECPR. Um, and yeah, we have reserve status there so we can go in, we can sit in, we can, um, most of the negotiations are taking place sort of facing towards speakers i suppose um and so you're all facing in a single direction and so if you if you wanted to go up and talk to a delegate um you can you can do that um you know so there's that kind of direct dialogue you can have like whilst negotiations happening if, if you're a trusted advisor yeah. or you know if, if, you, if you have that kind of relationship um but similarly in the sort of margins you know we, we also organize kind of we organize events and we organize um yeah just sort of general advocacy um activities yeah yeah what i remember from my days is that the 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 ngos were always uh they were so well informed they knew so much more than uh Mm. than a lot of the delegates in the room and and by by having so much so much knowledge by being much a much better specialist because many of the people in the room are not yeah they're they're diplomats that also spend a lot of them their time negotiating on other subjects so you had a you had a kind of advantage of knowledge and that made ngos very valuable and that's and you yeah yeah, it gave you it gave you a place on the table even if you were not formally there yeah i think i think we play lots of roles like and i've I've thought about this a lot i think another one like you say exactly what you say but another one would just be like a just 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 a just a watchdog i suppose in a way not in a a mean way (laughs) Um, just in a sort of transparency sort of way, just having people in the room that can hold, you know, countries and people to account for what they said. Yeah, lots at stake in these little rooms, you know, where you've got, like you say, people that are generally not specialists. They're negotiating the words that will dictate, you know, how we'll deal with this problem. Um, so, yeah, it's important that we have, we have yeah. people there that are watching. And a lot of work takes place, uh, at least in my experience, in the coffee corners and the cafes uh, and in the evenings, uh, in, instead of officially in the room where it's uh, where it's spoken. I, I still have when I'm in Geneva. I'm, I'm, I'm still normally in non-pandemic days. I'm, I'm like three times three times a year in Geneva, and then whenever I I pass the the Pickwick Cafe, which is the closest cafe to the to the Palais de Nation. Uh, I, I always think of the many, many evenings that I spend there together with NGOs and, and, and working out yeah. ideas and yeah. finding compromises. Yeah. yeah, which is yeah. which is which makes it fun, I would say. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's um, I mean, yeah, because obviously with your yeah, extensive experience, you've obviously yeah, you, you know, kind of how influential we can be. But yeah, how important really like civil society participation, but all stakeholder and, you know, engagement is in these processes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So, so in these negotiations, you said it was it was uh, pretty soon. It became clear that uh, the more progressive, the more ambitious uh, statement was was going to win. The the Rwanda and and, uh, and Peru uh, resolution was was getting more and more support. But I suppose that countries that are let's say oil producing countries, they must have hit the break because it's their income. Oh, yeah. We already we already want. You know, do something about climate change. So we want to get rid of, of fossil fuels, and then on top of that, we're also going to take away their plastic. So, so what what was? I, I know you cannot really speak about individual countries' positions, but let's say if we, if we talk about oil producing countries in general, how how where's their position in all this? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um... I mean, yeah, th- th- this is this is a big question now. Uh, this is the debates move forward from even a few years ago when most people were still talking about plastic as it's just litter, you know, stuff that we find in the environment that's the fault of the consumer. Like people realise now, a lot of people realise in the public domain that yeah, it's all about really cutting production um, and sort of living within our means within that um, within that respect. Um, yeah. Sorry, could you just prompt me? Jesus, uh, probably, uh, I kind of went off on one there. And, and then, uh, yeah, I I also have a little bit of problem hearing you. Can you talk a little bit closer to the mic? So I wondered on 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 a country, let's say the 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 Saudi Arabia's of this world, but I don't want to pinpoint, especially on one big oil producer in the Middle East. But um, uh, they're not known to be uh, the most environmentally progressive in the world. They still produce oil. Um, they their whole economy depends on it. So the only alternative last time and the only time ever in my life that I was in Saudi Arabia and I was in a meeting and I had to talk to them about all kinds of water issues. Uh, the people I was speaking to just came back from a meeting uh, which was about alternatives uh, for Saudi Arabia's economy. And then uh, the word that I heard most that, that was on their lips was plastic. So they thought like... When we can no longer sell our oil, we can at least sell plastic uh, and 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 give some added value to the raw product of um, of, of crude oil. Um, but our, what will those countries do? Will will they uh, officially they are now on board? But what you often see is negotiations that countries are on board because that gives them more potential to disrupt the negotiations than if you're standing on the outside is 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 that something you fear that might happen here yeah i mean it's always a risk and the, the work has kind of only really um begun um the, the yeah the plastics and the petrochemical industry are incredibly powerful it's a multi-trillion dollar industry um and yeah there are concentrations of you know production uh, in certain countries or certain certain areas and yeah we're, we're we'll, we'll be fighting that all the way um they they, they they'll, they'll be quite relentless i think um throughout this whole process um but it's yeah. been so far it's been good watching watching them realize the temperature in the room changing um and yeah. slowly going from oh absolutely nothing legally binding don't be ridiculous we've got everything under control to a year ago oh yeah we do no we definitely do and they're celebrating they're saying they're celebrating but these interests are incredibly are incredibly powerful, um, but I also think we've got enough momentum in terms of like state support and certain regional support, but also 
this really this issues really capture the imagination of the public as well and i think yeah. there's just there's so much energy and momentum behind this now that i think we could we are strong we are strong enough to counter that um but yeah the work's just begun like that's yeah. the, the work has literally just begun yeah. yeah. So, and, and there's uh, apart from let's say the, the oil producing countries and the other ones, uh, there is also a kind of north south uh, divide uh, where let's say in 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 climate change and in, in UNFCCC the 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 UN climate treaty, uh, there's a lot of talk about loss and damage, uh, saying that uh, the countries that have created the problem which is the 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 rich western countries in the north uh, they should compensate the countries in the south that are uh, so much impacted by it here it's a, it's a bit different i guess because it's it's not particularly the north that is so polluting it's 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 a it's a different system but still if we worldwide agree that we want to reduce plastic pollution I suppose somebody will have to pay up for it. If we want, let's say, a country like Yemen or Somalia to to produce less plastic, the, the first thing they will say, well, we support you, but we need your financial support before we can do anything. So is, is that part of the negotiation? Well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so, yeah, firstly, I just want to say that, you know, at the moment all we've secured is just a mandate, right? So we've just secured a decision where countries have, basically decided that we are going to negotiate a treaty. This is something that we're going to do and we're going to do it before the end of, of 2024. Okay. So that's so that's like the mandate. It's pretty do. fast for 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 uh, international negotiations. It is yeah, it is quite it is quite quick. But then when we look at the Montreal protocol it was it was, you know, nine, it was negotiated in pretty much nine months. It is a matter of political will. Like it's ambitious yeah. but it's it's definitely it's definitely um it's definitely possible. But yeah, in terms of the multilateral fund, that this was this was something that was uh, actually agreed upon. Like it was one of the first sort of major successes, I guess, um, during the negotiations when that was finally decided upon, and there was this lovely eruption of, of sort of uh, applause um, when it happened when when it was agreed that you know countries unanimously agreed to have a de- like and consider the option of a dedicated multilateral fund, which basically means this is one of the reasons why the Montreal Protocol was so successful, like I said, because it had like this fund, this dedicated fund that countries would pay into, you know, the more developed countries with broader shoulders, you know, could pay in a bit more and then that could be used to equitably distribute those resources so that everyone had the ability to meet the implementation and compliance needs um, of the convention. So that was, I don't know, I don't know if that makes, if I'm making sense to people, but yeah, but, yeah, that's yeah. a big win. That's a big win because it means that we can, yeah, we can make sure that countries that, like, say, Yemen, that couldn't couldn't afford to to, to, to maybe implement certain things, were, you know, would have access to. Yeah, but I I guess you must be worried now, looking at how the world has changed in the past. What is it, twelve or thirteen days? Um, that uh, the, the will will there be a willingness to pay for another fund because. Already we have uh, the pandemic, which has been extremely costly. And on top of that, we have the climate crisis where the North has promised to pay $100 billion per year, per year to, um, uh, to the countries in the South. That was already in 2009, and we're still not uh, paying our fair share in the North. And now on top of that, uh, the, the 
countries in uh, in Europe are now rapidly uh, both stepping up their defense spending as well as the spending on completely transitioning uh, the the whole energy structure away from from dependence on on Russian fossil fuels. So the bills are stacking up, yeah. and um, I uh, as as you know, I'm, I'm I'm fully on your side, and I I believe we urgently need a plastic treaty. But I can imagine that in this uh, this time frame that we're on now of all these multiple crises stacking stacking up on each other, that this must be uh, th- this will be a difficult part in the negotiations, more difficult than it would have been two or three weeks ago. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. But I think something something that we've trying to been sort of convince people of well, fairly successfully um, is that you can't really decouple plastic pollution from from climate change, uh, they're, they're kind of one and the same. Ninety um, percent of the of ninety percent of the greenhouse gas footprint, which is which is huge, it's about six percent of oil consumption now, but it could be up to thirty percent soon. is is based on is based on plastic production, um, and so it's very difficult to decouple decouple those two because they're both fossil fuels basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that the, this rather than this sort of isolate would rather than the sort of, yeah, isolated and probably scientifically incorrect way of looking at environmental problems as separate and siloed and individual and requiring different approaches. It's like, okay, no, we need to kind of think about addressing these, you know, problems more holistically. And one way we yeah. can do that is by cutting production because this is the biggest greenhouse gas um, yeah. footprint. Plus so that, that automatically also means more recycling and reuse of, of plastic. So more towards a, a circular model. More circular model, yeah. I mean, there, there were there was there was those that would say that, that plastic is inherently in circular, like it's not a circular material inherently, um, because you can't continually recycle plastic like thermoplastics. You can't just continually recycle them, cycle them endlessly. Um, it's not possible because they, the, the 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 integrity, like the structure of the polymer, the material breaks down over time. So you need new virgin feedstock. You need more virgin plastic to feed into it as you go along, and so it's sort of it perpetuates that. So what we say is that, you know, the very last thing we should be doing is recycling. And by that, I mean, once all the other options have become exhausted, and that's the way that we need to think in terms of design and in terms of production. Yeah. For example, you know, first of all, first of all, we ask ourselves the question, okay, do we need to produce this? If the answer is no, okay, well, how do we reduce it? You know, and yeah. then how do we make sure that we can reuse it? And then how can we make sure that it, when it breaks eventually in 50 years, yeah. we can repair it, you know, and so on and so forth, just like working your way down. And so the very last thing, yeah, would be, would be recycling once all other options have, have become exhausted. But for that, we need a treaty, yeah. Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how do you, how do you imagine, what, what will this treaty look like in a sense of, you know, what what would it mean for, let's say, uh, my country, for instance, for the Netherlands? So for, of course, we're not there yet. We're in the very early stages. But how would it, um, what would a, a government commit to? Would it be in absolute numbers of the amount of plastic used? Or would it more be something like a well-meaning commitment like, you know, we will do our best, which sounds a bit like the Indian option, as you just mentioned. Or will it be in? Will it differentiate between different uh, different products? Um, I I have no idea what this should look like. Uh, but is, are there already some initial ideas in, in what direction to go into? 
Yeah, I mean, this is what we're doing right now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of planning out sort of how how we might think this could work. It's a wicked problem. Yeah, you know, um, you know. Although there's a lot of similarities with HFCs from the Montreal Protocol, like plastics, literally in everything. You know, everything yeah. from your TV to to your smartwatch to yeah. you know to airplanes, like literally everything's made of plastic. So, so this is going to be a big deal, right? This is going to be a really, really big deal, and it's a really wicked problem. And uh, we're putting our best minds to it at the moment, um, including myself. But yeah, th- these are discussions that are going to be had at the during the INC. So the INC is the negotiating committee. And that's yeah. the thing that was established at the, at the UN Environment Assembly, and that will meet probably towards the end of this year. There'll be a prep meeting in probably in May, end of May, yeah. um, and then and then it will convene towards the end of the year. And this is when those discussions will take place. At the moment, all we have is the framework. We have the we have the the structure to build the house. That's what we have. That's what we, that's the metaphor. Is we yeah. have we have the the framework that we need to to, to go forth and and yeah. to do this thing. And, and will this uh, be again, Nairobi based the the negotiations or where will you do it? That was a yeah, well, that was a hot topic of debate. Um, I think I don't really know. I think probably they'll hold the pre meeting in Nairobi, um, yeah. the headquarters of UNEP, and then the INC will move around maybe, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. it's not not been announced yet. But it's very, very, very exciting indeed, and it's unprecedented, uh, really. Yeah, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. My own experience is that it's always good to at least have some neg- negotiations outside of the UN uh, capitals. Uh, do it in in a kind of strange, faraway place, because then you have the advantage that those people who professionally are there to hit the brake whenever they can, they are, they are not present there. So you have a more uh, creative and more daring uh, community together if you if you move to, uh, to places that are a bit far away. And you see it in some treaties where, for instance, established treaties already that have something like there's an annual meeting in, let's say, Geneva or in New York, and then the second year, there's a meeting in uh, a country in the in the in the global south. Then you see normally that the progress is made when you are not in in a big UN capital. Um, so that's just uh, mm-hmm. w- one of the mm-hmm. tricks I have on my sleeve after <laughs> after having been involved for many years. So uh, another thing I wonder in in the treaty. So whatever the um, still to be negotiated. Um, um, aspects will be that will be in in the treaty. Um, how do you punish misbehavior? Because you you can have a carrot and a stick approach, and the carrot can be you can get financial aid, and, and uh, you can have exchange of knowledge, and you can think of a few other things. Um, but of course, those that agree to a treaty and they misbehave, um, there's also the question: Shall we? Shall we punish those countries uh, somehow? And and that is, of course, always a tricky issue, which in in an environmental treaty is very difficult. Are there any thoughts on um, on what direction this will go into? I think I'm. I think I missed that last. Sorry, like twenty seconds. Oh, uh, sorry. So speaking? what? So if you take a carrot and stick approach for okay, yeah, you, you uh, moving moving governments uh, forward in the right direction, the carrots are obvious. There's normally money, um, but uh, what is the stick? How do you punish a country that is misbehaving, is producing way more plastic than it should, and then throwing most of it in the ocean? Yeah. 
I mean, the thing about plastic pollution, yeah, is it's transboundary, right? And so when you've got when you've got these countries, you know, this, we see it in East Africa. We hear from East Africans all the time, like our poorest borders, you yeah, know, because plastic just flows in and out. And so there is a lot of there is a we're hoping to be yeah a lot of pressure, I suppose, diplomatically, because there are we have this critical mass now of countries, and it's not just in the global north; it's also in the global south. So we've got, you know, a huge cohort of Latin American countries and Caribbean countries. We've got the whole Pacific, Pacific Island countries. We've got quite a few throughout Asia. Um, and we've got basically most of the African continent, you know, the whole of the EU and its member states. Like they all, they all, they all want this, you know, um, and, 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 and you can see that, you can see that further, like in the negotiations, they're really, really excited about this and they really, really want, because they see the value in it. Not just from an environmental standpoint, but from an economic one too. Um, and so I think, yeah, everyone kind of realised. Well, the vast majority of countries now realise that this is something that we kind of need to do, and that's why we all agreed to this sort of legally binding element to it. And legally binding, I mean, what is international law, Alex? Like it's just international relations. I think on steroids. I don't know. Um, there would yeah. need to be a compliance. Yeah. There would need to be a compliance mechanism. Um, but yeah, we haven't. We haven't got that. That yeah, we're just trying to yeah. well, figure out its design at this stage. And yeah, well, I can imagine voluntary reporting is is already one thing, and then uh, you can you oh, can yeah, yeah. check on each other's reporting, which is uh, which is uh, a very light mechanism. Um, if I look, for instance, the landmines protocol, the the Ottawa Convention, what we did there is that. Um, the reporting that we had agreed amongst ourselves was was pretty light among among the governments. Now, what the NGOs did, they uh, got money from well, from me basically sitting in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands and uh, and and a few other uh, people in in Scandinavian countries or from a few governments, I should say. So we gave them some money so they could organize um, a kind of uh, annual. A report which was called the, the landmine monitor initiative and uh, what they did is parallel to what the na- national governments reported they also made a report for each single country and it turned out that th- their reports were much better much more precise yeah. uh, which made of course during the next meeting on landmines um, that everybody who was present had, um, apart from our own information, much better information what was going on. And that it, it helped to um, to raise the bar for all countries. So I think that's typically something that, um, that NGOs can do successfully. Um, I think this is all mighty interesting. Just briefly, um, uh, uh, now that we, we near towards the end, and, and by the way, those that are listening, if you have questions, just uh, raise your hand, call in, I should say. Um, but before we go there, on um, on the Environmental Investigation Agency, you you work on all kinds of other issues as well. What what are the other main priorities uh, that you're working on this year? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So we yeah Environmental Investigation Agency. Uh, we have offices in London and Washington DC, and we campaign. Um, we investigate and campaign against environmental crime and abuse. Um, and we have several different programs, right? So I work on our ocean program, but we've also got one for wildlife. We work on uh, illegal trade in ivory um, and sort of just traditional Chinese medicine. Um, 
uh, we, we also are quite active in Myanmar and other countries around the world with regards to forests and illegal deforestation, working uh, investigations and policy work. Yeah, so we use our investigations to um, blow up certain topics that we want um, and, and sort of uh, unmask uh, these sort of criminal syndicates, I suppose, that are trading animal parts. Uh, but yeah, also for forests, and then we have a climate campaign as well, um, where we focus, like I said before, on uh, super climate pollutants like HFCs and CFCs, which are uh, the ones we described earlier. Yeah, so you cover basically what I normally call the big three in 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 our planetary problems: uh, the climate change, uh, the biodiversity loss, both animals as well as uh, as, as forests, um, and and then number three, uh, pollution, and that's that's first and foremost uh, plastic. Um, so that's all covered. Um, I'm looking at, um, uh, at at my screen now. I don't see any any hands uh, raised by uh, by people that have questions. I'm I'm glad we have some some listeners because it is this is uh, a really important subject uh, that gets some attention. So yeah, I would I would like to. Oh, I see a question coming up. Um, um, Evelyn, can you unmute yourself? It's the bottom. Yeah, there yeah, you are. Yeah. I can hear you. Okay, cool. I was just wondering, that just popped into my head, a question popped into my head just now. Um, you're going to try and tackle, like, how much plastic we're using and all that. And what about what about all the plastic that we've already produced and all the pollution that's out there? Is there part of the treaty that's going to deal with cleaning that mess up i might have missed that because i've like parts of this discussion went over my head but that's mm. just something I that's a great to... yeah thank you evelyn thank you that's a re- that's a really good question um yeah and it, yeah i think a lot of people are probably wondering that and me too um i suppose there are there are limits to what what the treaty can can, can do but certainly we would want there to be an inclusion of remediation of legacy pollution so like that's basically cleaning up pollution that's already in the environment um and unfortunately though like realistically we we would have to focus on hotspot areas so we'd have to identify places where we would go very strategically in a coordinated manner um, and 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 sort of extract large quantities of plastic as much as possible from the environment like we yeah that would be great to do that um, but for the large majority, it's just realistically not, sadly, it's not possible. Um, at least 50%, probably more uh, of plastic in the ocean is, is, is at the bottom, right at the bottom of the ocean. It's just sitting there, slowly breaking up into microplastics. Uh, just like the logistical costs alone and just like from a climate perspective alone, like all the energy it would take to like go down there and pick all the plastic up and bring it back. It's just, it's just kind of, it's horrible, but we need to do the best we can but before things are in the environment we need to focus on what we actually have flooding through our economy um because before it's in the environment it's in the economy um, and so that's kind of where we think the focus needs to be ultimately um, because we have you know say 400 million tons of virgin plastic produced last year and we're looking at you know doubling that in the next 15 20 years um does that make sense, Evelyn? I don't know if I. Yeah, it does. Thank yeah. you. Do you have a, Do you have a, Yeah, because uh, it's difficult to, to sort of 
onto that one because I would love to say that we can just clean up everything, but it's genuinely we need to do the best we can. But that's all we can do. I think. Yeah. I would say actually the argument that you uh, of the fact that you can't clean up afterwards the the overwhelming majority that's already out there is actually uh, a very strong extra argument why uh, we need to be so um, uh, so 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 fanatic and do everything we can to to avoid that more is coming into the environment uh, yeah because indeed anything's at the bottom of the ocean there's of course no way that 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 we can ever uh, get that out of the environment um, which one of the reasons that makes plastic such a sad story because it's uh, uh, it's something we can't turn back. Everything that's out there already is 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 never coming yeah. back except for like a huge pile that you can uh, that you can uh, you can access somehow, um, or maybe the big uh, uh, garbage uh, patches uh, in 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 the oceans, uh, which always get a lot of attention uh, more more than prevention. So that's maybe in the um in the media i guess uh, the, the focus on on the economy uh as as you were just saying would probably be a better focus Absolutely. um yeah any other last thoughts any other questions um if not i'm going to convince everybody that uh you should uh, join um this uh, show again the, the other show actually which is called the news uh which will be twice on thursday that's an exception i normally never do two podcasts on one day but due to circumstances we had to do it so that will be on thursday at 11 o'clock uh, in the morning uh, on in eastern time will be with uh, vanessa champion and uh, that will be on green living and then four hours later so at three o'clock in the afternoon um I will have the regular podcast um, with Alistair Doyle that uh, we always do together on Thursday at three o'clock now already for like two months or so. That's, so this has become really a regular thing. We do do things at uh, uh, these relatively early times for American listeners so that we can have those uh, in Europe uh, also on board. And uh, that is uh, the same, of course, for Tom, who is joining us uh, right now. Um, yeah, with that, uh, Tom, I would like to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, I hope you can uh, you can uh, keep telling us how things are going uh, during this year uh, after the meeting in May and the one uh, towards the end of the year. I envy you flying to uh, Nairobi since when I look outside, I only see uh, gray and cold <laughs> and snow. Uh, yeah. So you got the better deal. And I would like to thank the, to the listeners and I hope to... Um, to see and hear you all back on Thursday. Tom, stay online on the Zoom, and uh, then I say goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. Thanks for that yeah, clapping. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Cheers, guys.